We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media. And it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos, and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. What's it like to grow up in a fundamentalist religious sect with practically no knowledge or understanding of the outside world? How would it feel if you were never taught English or maths despite living in the middle of London? And what would it be like to turn away from your upbringing, even if you knew it would mean losing contact with friends, community, and even your family? Stamford Hill is home to the largest Hasidic Jewish population in the whole of Europe. And despite growing up only a couple of miles away from the neighborhood, I've never actually known much about what life is like for this particular community. And that's why I've been so desperate to meet this week's guest, physics and philosophy nerd Izzy Posen, who can tell me not only what it's like to be brought up in an ultra-Orthodox context, but what it was like to leave it. We'll talk about the secret schools of Northeast London, how we all speak Yiddish without knowing it, and what Jews and Bengalis have in common. Clue, it's not speaking quietly. I hope you enjoyed the show. So I grew up in a family of not particularly strict Muslims, put it that way. So everyone kind of made their own accommodation with Haram. And for my mum, she's got a rule called Big Pig, Little Pig. She's like, Big Pig, Haram. Can't have that. Can't have pork chop. Can't. Uh. But she's like salami, little pig, and God can't see. It, it, that's clever. <laughs> a Jewish friend of mine, um, he brought up his children kind of traditional, but not like orthodox. Mm-hmm. And his children used to eat like ham and bacon. And one day they came home from like Hebrew school and said, "Our teacher said that Jews can't eat anything from a pig." He's like, "But it's not from a pig. It's from Tesco's." <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting the kind of accommodations that people make, what they will do and what they won't do, right? It's interesting the pig thing because I know like lots of secular Jews who will do everything and anything, yeah. but they won't touch pork. It's interesting these cultural things. It, there's there's a historical uh, uh, anecdote that kind of, you know, apparently archaeologists say that pork kind of the prohibition prohibition against pork predates the Hebrew Bible. So it's because they're dirty animals, right? Because they eat anything. It's not clear why. Why are they, di- are they are they dirtier than cows and sheep and other things? I think it's because they roll pigs in the would eat sewage. So pigs and right. dogs would eat feces. And so, you know. Right. And that's, the, what's the, that's one of the really interesting thing about, I guess this is in the Torah, but I only know this from reading the Old Testament. So the, the holiness codes in Leviticus, you've got mm. all of these rules about what do you do when fabric gets moldy? Yeah, um, or woman on a period or all yeah. these kinds of purity, purity laws. And a lot of it is to do with, I guess, them trying to make sense of hygiene at the time. Yeah. So we're like, we're in a really hot part of the world. Yeah. yeah, like in the Torah, after you are impure, you go to the ritual bath. Mm. Well, it's just the shower. You're cleaning yourself, right? I mean, um, I've, I mean, I could talk about ritual bathing all day long because I went to a hammam for the first time. And I just thought... What's that? So a hammam is a Turkish bath. Right. So you go and you sauna and then you go into a room and you lie down. It feels a bit like, um, like a mortician slab of some kind. So you kind of lie down and you're just very floppy. And then someone comes and scrubs you to within an inch mm. of your life. But it's also very social. So I found myself... 
I don't know, talking with other women in a way that I yeah. normally wouldn't across generations. And I think now that bathing is just so private, you do it in your own home, you lose that. Yeah. When I visited Denmark, um, my partner and I went to a public bath and we were very shocked because everyone was completely naked, mm -hmm. men and women and children. And they were like, it was like a community thing. And mothers were like telling bedtime stories to mm. like little girls and everyone's together. And it, it didn't feel creepy at all. It felt like a community atmosphere. Well, okay, mm. now we've made this case for nudity. Um, on we've jumped to... right in, haven't we? <laughs> Pow. So I grew up, I guess, kind of around the corner from you. So I was in North London, Enfield and Tottenham, and you grew up in Stamford Hill, which is yeah. for non-Londoners really not far, really, really not far. And yet it felt like a totally different world to me. Um, to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so, so why... Was Stamford Hill such a, you know, stronghold for the ultra-Orthodox community? How did that happen? Very interesting. Um, so this happened in the early 20th century. So Jews traditionally were fleeing Eastern Europe, the Tsarist pogroms in, in, in Russia. Uh, they were fleeing to the UK, well, mo mo mostly to America, actually. Um, but some of them to the UK, they settled in the East End of London. That was the traditional kind of Yiddish-Jewish hub. Um, when that became crowded and a bit squalid, uh, some kind of upwardly mobile uh, Jews moved to Stamford Hill. Originally, it wasn't like an ultra-Orthodox enclave at oh, all. Really? It was just Jews living there. Um, but over the century, it became more and more uh, kind of ultra-Orthodox. And I saw this happening over my own lifetime and over my parents' lifetime, um, where the kind of more moderates had to move out to kind of other places in northwest London and so on. And it became a very, uh, very kind of ultra-Orthodox, uh, devout kind of fundamentalist community. Well, because as a Londoner, if you cross over the border in Stamford Hill, visually everything looks really different. So you've got signage in Yiddish, you've got people... Do you have signage in Yiddish? Yeah, you like do have advertisements some. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you definitely see... It's not like official street signs. Oh, yeah, like, not, it's, it's not like you're in a different country. It's not like in Bangladesh where you do have Bengali on the street signs. You know, that would be really cool if they did do Yiddish signs in Stamford Hill. I would love I'm going to campaign for that. Um, <laughs> and you also, like, you know, if you're if you're on the bus going in or out of Stamford Hill, um, you know, you'll see, you'll see people reading books in Yiddish and Hebrew. Yeah. And I'm really nosy because whenever anyone's reading anything I'm like yeah. hmm yeah. Um, and the most striking distance is that people dress yeah. and conduct themselves very very differently Yeah. so um, if for someone who's never been to Stamford Hill or been into an ultra-orthodox community what is that style of dress? Yeah so um, maybe we should give a bit more background about mm. the community like what this community is all about why like why they're so insular and so on so this is a community that obviously survived the holocaust right mm. um and they uh decided you know they saw the world especially the western world becoming what in their mind would be a bit more decadent and um uh you know more sexual and things like that so they decided the only way they can survive in a place like london is by being very uh, insular, shutting themselves off from the world. And that's, a that's you know, we often talk about marginalized communities who end up falling between the cracks. This is very different. This is intentional and very conscious. You know, we want to be separate from the world. We speak a different language. We speak Yiddish because we don't want to be part of, of the wider world. And the dress, a large part of the dress is simply that. It's to be visually separated from the world. Um, for women, there's a big um, modesty element as well. So you would have mm -hmm. noticed all women will wear very traditionally modest clothes. So long skirts or dresses, no flashy colors, you know, covered up. Um, opaque tights. Opaque tights. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so you're not allowed to show any skin other than your hands mm -hmm. and your face. Um, 
other than that, all skin for women is forbidden. Can women in front of one another show more skin? Because yes. if you're a very strict Muslim and you wear an abaya, the rules are different when it's yeah. just women. Yeah, I'd imagine so, although I've never seen that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so there's a real... But, but for the men, mm. um, it's more to separate, to be separated. And also there's, it, it does have, you can think of it also a bit of kind of like an indigenous native tribal dress mm -hmm. if you imagine like native native americans um with their feathers and stuff mm -hmm. like that a little bit it has to do a little bit with that as well these you know there's the 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 heads the the hat that men will wear on festive occasions married men only it's called a strammel it's is that made, the sable fur that hat? is it's very very expensive um I mean, sable isn't cheap. It isn't cheap. And uh, it's definitely not uh, vegan friendly. If Oof. you're, uh, yeah. Um, and that, you know, goes back several centuries to, to traditional hairdress found in Eastern Europe. Um, so a lot of it is just maintaining those traditions as well. And for the outside observer, the Haredi community look very much like one thing. But are there different sects, traditions, practices? Absolutely, absolutely. So so the main divide within the Haredi Judaism is Hasidic versus non-Hasidic. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit difficult to explain in detail the origins, but basically the Hasidic... So if you go back to traditional Ashkenazi society in Eastern Europe before the Holocaust, this is a society that's been evolving for like a thousand years in those lands. Um, and, um, and in the late 17th century, maybe 18th century, um, there was kind of a spiritual revival. Um, you can think of it also as maybe a rebellion against the scholarly classes of the rabbis, mm -hmm. um, where they emphasized um, joy, ecstasy, dance, song, and Hasidim uh, descend from them. So the other group of Haredim are non-Hasidic. They're also Haredim, also ultra-Orthodox. They'll also keep all the commandments and everything. Um, but Stamfil is a Hasidic community. Mm -hmm. But within the Hasidic community, you have like dozens and dozens of different uh, sects is one word. Some people find the word sect offensive, mm -hmm. but you can call them dynasties. Mm -hmm. So every dynasty will have a leader who's called a Rebbe. So a Rebbe, not to be confused with a rabbi. Mm -hmm. um, who, I absolutely will be making that mistake over this conversation. Yeah, yeah um, that's fine. Um, um, Rebbes are hereditary positions, oh, unlike okay. rabbis. So a Rebbe dies, his son, who is the male, becomes mm -hmm. the next Rebbe. Um, and these uh, are different sects. They, sects. they are called after the villages in Eastern Europe where they come from. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. You'll see um, in Stamford Hill, in London, in Britain, uh, groups calling themselves after Eastern European villages. Okay, so I belonged, I grew up in the Satma sect. Mm -hmm. That's a village that is, if I'm not mistaken, is today in Romania. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the day, it like, you know, the borders were very it's part fluid. Of the, uh, Austrian Hungarian exactly. Empire. Exactly. Austrian Hungarian Empire, yeah. Borders were very fluid. Um, so that's one sect. But there's others. There's Bills that comes from Poland. There's lots of Ukrainian sects. Um, and do people mix from the different sects or do people keep quite separate within it? So they have their own institutions, their own synagogues. Um, but, um, and there's often, uh, people will often not intermarry. I mean, mm -hmm. there are exceptions, but usually you keep to yourselves but you still regard yourselves as part of the same community. So if somebody if somebody is in need, uh, you're not going to ask which sect do you belong to. Mm -hmm. You're going to help them. Um, um, and you'll make friends. And, and it's um, the neighborhoods are very mixed. People live uh, intermingled. So we had neighbors from all kinds of sects. Yeah. So what kind of family were you born into? What was the setup? Yeah, so I'm the oldest of 10. Oh! Uh, 
Yeah, uh, not a particularly large family for Hasidic standards. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, what what are we talking as the, the upper limit? I think the average birth rate is around s- between six and eight. I don't remember the exact figures, um, but we had friends. I mean, my mother's one of thirteen. That's a lot of bunk beds. A lot of bunk beds, indeed. Yeah, we never had our own bedrooms growing up. That's a very kind of middle class uh, thing. We we always shared bedrooms. Mm. Um, yeah, oldest of 10, a lot of responsibility on me. I was I was basically kind of a third parent from a very mm. young age, changing nappies, bathing my siblings, telling them bedtime stories, a bit like that. And so what was your education like? Right. So this is kind of a thorny topic um, and quite controversial in the community. So let me paint you a picture. So firstly, there's a very big gender divide. Mm-hmm. So boys and girls are educated very, very differently. I'll start off with girls because that's a bit simpler. Um, Girls go to obviously Hasidic schools, girls only schools, um, where they're brought up to be, you know, good Hasidic uh, women. Um, It's quite domestic. So they're brought up to be good good housewives Mm -hmm. and mothers. Um, The primary role for a woman in the community is to be a mother and a wife. Mm -hmm. Um, However, they also follow basically the national curriculum of secular education. So most Hasidic girls will do the GCSEs. Um, they it will be censored, so they'll mm-hmm. take out bits about evolution and bits about Big Bang theory or anything mentioning, you know, uh, years greater than six thousand. And um, if that comes up in the exams, you just wouldn't do that bit. They wouldn't do that. They tell the girls to not do it, and and it's a very you know and and yeah, it's it's a very again it, it, this community teaches its values very consciously. So they'll tell the girls, yes, you lose some marks, but look, you're going to serve God, which is more important. Marks are God, right? So they're brought up like that. So that's kind of girls. Boys are brought up to be scholars. Now, obviously, not every man is going to be a scholar. In fact, most men are just business people, shop owners, all kinds of economic activity. Um, But the ideology of the education system for boys is that every boy has to be brought up as if he is going to be a massive rabbi, a massive scholar. And then, you know, when he gets married, he can make a different choice. So it's very, very intense study from a very young age. The vast majority of it is religious text. So we're talking the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. We are talking about Talmud, which is an incredibly extensive body of work. What's the difference between the Torah and the Talmud? So the Torah is basically uh, the Christians would call it the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, We call it the Hebrew Bible Mm -hmm. um, because Old Testament implies that there's a new, which we don't believe in. Me Um, and you both, sister. (laughs) There you go. Um, The Talmud is, you can think of it as a legal code but it's not just law, it's also interpretation of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible. It's ethics, it's stories, it's it's very, very diverse. Some of it, and it, some of it is like very, like some of it is very philosophical, very intense, very legalistic, and some of it is just like wacky stories. So is it a bit are, like the Hadiths are to the Quran, the I, Talmud is to the Torah? I, I get that kind of impression, yeah. I don't know much about the Hadiths and the Quran, but I get I, that kind of impression. I'm not a student of scripture, so it's been a long time since right. I've read any. But, um, Did you... Grow, no, you grew up secular, you said you didn't grow up Muslim. Well, I, so my family was interfaith marriage bonanza, um, starting with my grandmother. So she was uh, raised Hindu and she married a Muslim, my grandfather, which was right. not very common at all. I can and imagine, yeah. Then 
There's my mum, who was raised Muslim. She married and subsequently divorced my father, a Hindu, and is now married to a Church of England raised atheist. Right. So, so you've got the, there's just Jews missing there. Yeah, look, and look, we're, we're really hunting for some. So, you know, if you know, <laughs> if know any, any single Jews who really like eating biryani, uh, like, you know, feel free to marry in. Um, so, yeah, big into faith, you know, free for all. And it meant that we had a lot of choice. We had a lot of choice if we wanted to be Hindu or Muslim right, or something else. Right, it was or very accepting. Yeah. Um, but what about, did you receive kind of a classically religious education? Not at no. all. Do you, how do you feel about that? So, I mean, I think this would be a really interesting point of comparison. So in some ways, I feel not at all rooted in my culture as it were i don't speak bengali i only speak english i didn't have a particularly religious upbringing now part of the reason for that is that my mum and my grandmother were both uh divorced women and right. how that's looked at within certain sections of the community is like you know you're the scarlet whore of babylon or something right and these were feminist women these were educated women these were socialist women political activists and they just didn't have any time for it right and in lots of ways I wish I'd had more of a experience socially being rooted in my community. But maybe that's more to do with language than it is religion. And then yeah. the other thing is, and I, I was actually talking about this with a friend of mine who's uh, mixed race the other day, is that being just brown, it makes you very rooted because you're sort of placed in that context right. with how you're treated right. by society. Right. So I'm like, well, sure, I didn't grow up speaking the language, but no one's going to mistake me for anything right, else. Right, right, um, right. In terms of be growing up in a way which was so, so embedded in the community and the culture, were you raised to think of it as a form of survival, that you have to keep this religious tradition, cultural tradition alive? There was an element of that, but I think it's deeper than that. It was about, you know, everything is about God, ultimately. We really, really believed it, like... You know, God wasn't just a fiction. God was very real and God wanted you to do these specific things. And if you didn't do it, you're going to end up in hell. Was like, it it's very... just the big picture stuff like praying or was it like really little things as well? Even little things. Yeah. There's Judaism is a, is a very, unlike Christianity, it's more like Islam, actually. Mm. It's very much about the practice and the minutiae, right? Um, so, yeah, your day is is literally guided by these thousands and thousands of little things. And the more you study, the more there's things to do. Um, so, like, what what kind of little things? Oh, li like, there's a way in which you have to cut your nails. Like, you can't just cut your nails one, two, three, four, five. You have to cut, like, one, leave out one, cut the next, leave out one, cut the next, and then come back. back. And you have to do your left hand before your right hand. And you Is there a reason given for that? There's reasons for everything. And there's, like, hundreds of reasons. And, and you know, some of them make more sense than others. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and th this is why, you know, th if you walk into any synagogue, the library is just incredibly extensive, walls and walls and walls of books, not just the synagogue, any um, uh, Orthodox home, any Orthodox Jewish home, like the pride of the of the home, the main living room, the wall is just covered with books. Mm -hmm. That's like the, like my culture is very much about learning. Mm. It's very much about knowledge. And, you know, I want to talk later about how that helped me in university, actually, mm. when I applied it to a different way, because traditionally it's about religious learning. So maybe I'll go back to to kind of the yeah, education yeah. system. We, we deviated a bit. So mostly it's studying the Torah, the Talmud, and Jewish law, which I started explaining a little bit what it was, the minutiae mm -hmm. of everything, and also a bit of ethics. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how to behave and, you know. Um, 
Now, there's very little room for secular education in boys' school. So from the age of 13, there's zero secular education. That's when boys go to yeshiva. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think it would be similar to madrasa, madrasa mm-hmm. maybe, um, in the Islamic world. Um, until the age of 13, most boys' school might have like an hour of secular education. At the end, very end of the day, it's not taken very seriously. The kids are tired. They muck about. Um, the kids don't sit GCSEs. Um, and a lot of the kids come out of the education system not being able to hold a conversation in English even, let alone knowing about science or math. Mm-hmm. And this has been, this is where it gets a bit political because the government has been trying to uh, change that and clamp down on it. And the community fights tooth and nail um, um, to maintain this education system, which it believes is necessary for its survival. Because currently there's a loophole, which is if yes. you only offer religious education, you're not legally classified yes. as a school, yes. so you're not regulated by Ofsted. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But that yeah. seems like quite a big loophole. It is a big loophole. And the government has tried to uh, patch it up. They've mm-hmm. tried to bring in uh, uh, an education bill. And that, what happened then was Liz Truss happened. And, every, and this was suddenly <laughs> not at the top of the agenda. And I guess from a, like a very religious perspective, you can say this was almost God intervening to like, you know. <laughs> Liz uh, Truss <laughs> was his instrument. <laughs> exactly, to, to put it on the back shelf. This is going to come back. It's a cycle mm-hmm. and it keeps coming back every few years and the community fights it. Um, and the community is very good at fighting it and they claim it's anti-Semitic, mm. which obviously it isn't. Um, I mean, your primary school was shut down multiple times by the government, right? Right. I went, so I should clarify, the primary school that I went to was like an exception even for the Hasidic community. Really? So I mentioned that one hour at the end of the day of secular education, my primary school didn't have even that. So mine was like for the very extreme of the community. It wasn't just the lack of secular education. It was, um, they had very harsh corporal punishment. I would come home very regularly with bruises. Um, some kids had broken bones. This wasn't regular, but it happened. Mm. Hygiene standards were awful. Like the food was moldy. Like it was a very bad place in many, many ways. And that was what? Just a lack of money to a run A lack it? of funding, yeah. Yeah. And also a lack of interest. It was considered, you know, the only important thing for a child is a spiritual development. So, you know, these pesky little things like good food and clean toilets doesn't matter. Um, but the the corporal punishment element, I mean, recognizing that this isn't representative of um, Hasidic schooling, but how did parents justify that to themselves? So all of our parents were also hit as children. Okay. Mm. And now if you go back, I mean, if you go back to like the fifties, even in, you know, non-Jewish school, in regular British schools, there was corporal punishment, mm. right? So this is a generational thing as well. Um, so, you know, if I would come on crying that I was beaten, my father would say, well, you know, I was also beaten as a child. That's just part of it. Just, you know, behave. Don't be naughty next time. Mm. Um, I should say things are changing internally. This is a generational thing. So I don't think the kind of uh, beatings that I got as a child, I don't think today Hasidic boys are getting those kinds of beatings. Corporate punishment still happens. It mm. does. Um, but it's much, much less. And it is because parents have spoken out. Did that... I mean, as as well as things like intellectual curiosity and your love of science and philosophy, which we'll come to later, do you think that those early experiences maybe attach turbo boosters to your desire to explore and escape and find different ways of living? It's possible. I always I always grew up with a profound sense of injustice that I was a child. I was never I was never kind of naughty in the sense of just wanting to be naughty. I was just you know maybe a bit hyperactive, um, maybe a bit independently thinking, and I felt a profound sense of injustice for being beaten like that. Um, so it's very possible that, that kind of pushed me in a certain direction. 
as part of a multitude of factors, right? Mm-hmm. But it definitely shaped me, and and I have scars of that to this mm. day. Uh, um, mental scars, I, I, I do have. Um, I've been diagnosed with anxiety and depression, and um, part of it is genetic. Um, mm-hmm. And Ashkenazi Jews, in particular, have are prone to these kinds of things. Um, but part of it probably has to do with my childhood experiences. I mean, do you think that when when you talk about Ashkenazi Jews are more prone to depression and anxiety? Um, people talk about intergenerational trauma as well. I mean, do you put much stock in that idea or are you more of a, a hardcore biological determinist? <laughs> um, nothing is fully biological. Nothing is fully environmental. Everything has parts of uh, both. Ashkenazi culture, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert in the field, right? But Ashkenazi culture, we're talking about a community that lived for at least a thousand years in a state of constant persecution and constant survival. Um so who knows how that affected us? Um, so you, there's this difference between boys' education and girls' education, with girls getting more of a secular education. Why why were girls allowed that and boys weren't? Was it just because you had the expectation of boys being religious scholars and girls? It's like, ah, oh, they, they matter less. But, but what was going on? I mean, yeah, you know. It's very interesting. So there's the official reason given, and then there's my theory. Mm-hmm. So the official reason is that girls aren't allowed to study religious texts. And the Talmud said, the Talmud, um, which as you can imagine is quite traditional, has sexist elements in it. Um, the Talmud says that women are just too feeble-minded to study, <laughs> to study um, you know, Talmud and legal texts. I mean, um, it has that in common with Nietzsche, who thought that if a woman was interested in uh, academics, there was something wrong with her sexuality. Right. Interesting. I mean, look, these kinds of attitudes about women are, you know, these are traditional sexist attitudes about women, right, which are found across, you know, uh, I don't know if all cultures, but across many cultures. Um, so that's one reason. Women are not allowed to learn religious stuff. So, well, we've got to keep them busy so they can learn secular um, studies. I have a kind of more cynical theory um, this is just my theory, mm-hmm. I should say. This is a patriarchal community where men have the power. Men are the rabbis, men are the decision makers. And women are in a subordinate position. It's less dangerous for women to know outside knowledge and to be a bit more integrated in the world because they don't have the power. So, and this, by the way, is, is more general. It's not just about secular education. Women are also, um, women can, for example, you know, Girls would go out shopping in supermarkets, um, in shopping malls, um, which boys, it wouldn't be considered appropriate for boys to do. Women have a certain element of of more freedom to go out. Women speak a better English. Um, but because, and again, this is my theory, because they're in a subordinate position, there's less danger of that. Did you ever feel jealous of your sisters always. that they got this kind of education and you didn't? Always, always very jealous of the girls. It's not just they got a better education. Um secular education speaking, they also had more fun in school and they weren't beaten and they could explore lots of things. They could explore art. They put on shows for each other, for other schools. They did art. They went on trips, all these kinds of things. We were just sitting and reading texts. Yeah, we were always very jealous of the girls. But also the girls were jealous of us because we had access to the prized possession of our heritage and they didn't, right? I could Mm. open any Jewish book and read it. And, And ultimately later when I decided to kind of deviate from that, it was because I knew the sources and I can read the sources that can make up my own judgment about whether I believe in it or not. Girls don't have that. Um, I remember, I think, hearing something about the way in which milk was stored at your primary school. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, um, so you've clearly done your research. Um, no, I'm just really interested in dairy. Just uh... Okay. We didn't have a fridge, our school. That's how poor we were. So in the winter, they would 
throw the milk up on the roof. Um, and every morning a boy had to climb up uh, through pipes um, <laughs> to get the milk. Yeah. What, like little spider monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you ever do it? I don't, maybe, maybe, I don't remember. Yeah. See, I mean, I, obviously as conditions go for schools, you go very bad, but I know that when I was a kid, like people would be fighting over to the climbing job. Like, oh, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. Um, what, what was it like being a kid growing up in that context and maybe being non-conformist in some way? So you, you talked about um, being more curious and wanting some intellectual exploration, but you know, what if there was a kid growing up in that context who was maybe questioning their sexuality or something like that? Okay, sexuality is a, is, is, is a good one to explore because sexuality, like, doesn't exist at all. Like, heterosexuality doesn't exist. Sexuality is, it, there isn't even a word in Yiddish for sexuality. It's not something you talk in the public domain about. Uh, boys and girls are not meant to know anything about sexuality until, until like, a week before the marriage, at which point they'll be called in uh, with a special, uh, they call bride and groom teachers, who will tell them about the birds and the bees. Um, and that's it. You're meant to, we were brought up... Um, and this is straight and gay. It doesn't matter. Mm. We were brought up um, to suppress any sexual desire. It was considered one of the worst sins to waste seed. Um, so, yeah, you, you're not allowed to, th as, a, as, as a man, you're not allowed to think about women. You're not, you're not allowed to look at women. You may notice if you walk in Stanford Hill, you may notice some of the boys will walk on the street like this, just looking in front of them. Mm. Next time you go uh, look at it, um, look out for it. Um, we were told when you go from home to yeshiva on the way, you're just looking in front of you where you're stepping not to look at the wider street i totally interpreted that wrong because i know you thought they were too. rude or something no no no, mm. no no i thought that was we look very culturally distinctive and when you look very culturally distinctive you can be a target for right. racial abuse or being attacked so i'm just going to look down and not make mm. eye contact that's what i thought that was about no it's not about that it's 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 about not seeing things um that you're not meant to see yeah. so you've got these like you know special bride and groom teachers, how would a couple meet in order to get married? Everything through matchmakers. Oh, everything through matchmakers. Everything arranged. The parents will talk to matchmakers. The boy and the girl will only meet at the very... At the point where the boy and girl meeting, they're basically almost engaged. It's like, you know, it's very unlikely that a boy and girl will meet and then won't go ahead with it. Oh, really? So Yeah. It can happen. You can say no, but it's unlikely. Um, and so what was it... I mean, g going back to, you know... Um, the bit in the timeline when you're, you know, at yeshiva, so you're probably a teenager. Were you thinking about dating at all? No, no. Uh, like, it didn't cross your mind that like um, dating or girls were. No, we didn't. We weren't allowed to talk with girls. I didn't even even first cousins, female first cousins. We we weren't allowed to talk with. The only women in my life were my sisters, my mother, my grandmothers. Um, that's it. And what did you remember thinking about people who were outside of the community? Because Again, for people that might not be familiar with the area of Stamford Hill, it is just in the middle yeah. of everything. Yeah. So you walk five, ten minutes and you've got all of the bars and the clubs of Kingsland Road. You mm. go up north a bit and then you're in my area, which is a very, very big Afro-Caribbean and Latin American community. It is so cosmopolitan. It's very multicultural, that community. Yeah. Um, we had kind of almost virtual ghetto walls around the kind of Jewish streets. And that's where we would hang out. We would never venture out of it. I mean, I, as a boy, you know, men who do business at a later stage will, of course, leave. And, you know, um, and but even within Stanford Hill, it's very multicultural. We had a mm. big Muslim community in our midst. There was um, one of the biggest synagogues in Stanford Hill is right next door, a massive mosque on mm. Kaysnav Road. Um, I don't know if you know that road. Um, and there's actually relatively good community relations 
uh, because both communities are quite inward looking, quite insular. It's a very kind of devout, pious Muslim community. Mm. You know, they wear, you know, the, the, the also kind of the garb. There's, mm. there's lots of similarities, actually. Yeah. Um, and but both communities, they're interested in themselves, but they also understand that there needs to be peace to coexist. So they'd always, we'd always, we'd never had any inc- incidents. Mm-hmm. But did you, good relationships. did you ever feel curious about, oh, what is your life like? And is it different from mine? I did. I was very curious. Um, I wasn't meant to be. I wasn't supposed to be mm-hmm. because we're not supposed to think about outsiders. Um, I was. And I always wondered, well, hold on a sec. We think that our religion is true, but then these people think theirs is true. Who Who's to tell, right? So these kinds of questions. Did you ever have any interactions with outsiders before you left the community? I did. I'd find any excuse I could to, to speak with people. Um, uh, late in my teens, when I was traveling on the train um, to a yeshiva up north in Gateshead, mm-hmm. um, I would find opportunities to speak with outsiders, yeah, and exchange notes. And and what would you talk about? Mainly, it was I was very obsessed with, with religion and mm-hmm. with whether it was true. I needed to know because keep in mind, the stakes are very high. Like, I was brought up literally that if you don't follow the religion, you're going to hell for eternity. That's not pleasant. Um, so it was important for me whether it was true or not. So I would have debates with non-Jews about like evolution or, or other religions and trying to convince them that my religion was right, but <laughs> also in the process exchanging ideas. But wait, hang on. You can't persuade them that they're right because you can't convert. I mean, you can't convert into the um, uh, Hasidic tradition, can you? You can. Wait, what? Yeah, you okay, can. You can it's very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. Um, but you can, yeah. Did you know any uh, converts growing up? I did, yeah. And what what kind of backgrounds do they come from? I don't know. I, I, but there weren't many of them. Because, I mean, most converts who are going to convert to Judaism are not going to go to Hasidic Judaism, right? Uh, that's very, very harsh. And and it's it's not even about the religion. The, the, the culture is so specific and insular that it's just very difficult to assimilate into it. So most, you'd have to learn Yiddish. You would have to... You have to learn Yiddish. You have to learn cultural practices. And, and, and even after that, you'll usually find yourself in a marginalized position because you're not going to fit in well. And so when you were when you were talking to people from uh, different kinds of backgrounds, did you find your own mind changing about the way you'd been raised? I was on a big journey throughout my teens of trying to broaden my horizons. This wasn't necessarily just talking with people outside. This was even discovering classical Jewish literature. So mm-hmm. Hasidic Judaism, as I've mentioned, is not a very old phenomenon. Um, it evolved from the 18th century on and it intensified post-Holocaust with the insularity. Um, Jewish, if you go back to medieval times, um, Jewish literature is very philosophical, engaging with the world. You have great scholars like Maimonides, who is world known as a philosopher, um, there were there were rabbis who were scientists, who were doctors, who were astronomers, um, and they wrote philosophy, and they had much broader horizons, and they weren't fundamentalists. Some of them were grappling with biblical texts and saying, you know, we need to interpret them allegorically, not literally. Um, and so I, so actually, most of it was just discovering these texts and reading a bit more. And where widely. did you discover them? Where? Yeah, they were in the library of my yeshiva. Um, they are considered part of the classical canon. You're not encouraged to read them. They'll kind of say, well, you need to be over the age of 40 to read them. You need to be very pious to read them because, you know, but I, I read them anyway. And that's how I broadened my horizons over my teenage years. Um, and then there was also um, discovering science. Um, mm. So I would sneak into uh, secular libraries and um, bring back books, which I hid under my mattress in Yeshiva. <laughs> Um, and I read, you know, and this is just basic stuff, not, you know, math, science. I was just very curious. I wanted to 
I wanted to learn. I taught myself English. Um, How did you teach yourself English? I went to a yeshiva in Gateshead. So mm-hmm. this is next to Newcastle. There's a the biggest yeshiva in Europe. Um, and um, so Hasidim, as I've mentioned, um, most Hasidic men speak Yiddish, not English. But non-Hasidic Haredi men do speak English. And that was a non-Hasidic yeshiva. It was Haredi but non-Hasidic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I met many friends. I made friends who spoke English and and um, maybe they wanted to speak to learn Yiddish, so we'd kind of partner up together and they'd teach me English and I'd teach them Yiddish. And so when you were accessing uh, secular texts in English, how did it feel emotionally for you when you were I doing it? I loved it. I fell in love with science. Like, imme- even before I knew that science was a thing, I was busy, like, doing science in Yiddish and Hebrew. I would, I would, I don't know, I'd watch my mother cooking and I'd come up with, thermodynamic theories about, you know, how the ice melts and how the water level rises. I'd, I'd look at the world. I'd, I'd be in a train and I'd watch, you know, how the acceleration affects, I don't know, the water level in my cup and these kinds of things. And I'd write them down in Hebrew, um, um, kind of theories in Hebrew. And I was very excited to then discover that actually I don't have to invent the wheel or a new people have done this stuff. Um, so I was very excited to, 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 you know, discover Newton and and Galileo and all these theories in the, in the textbooks. And so how did you find your way into university because so far from what you've told me you didn't really have any mainstream education at all did you do GCSEs or no, A levels no um not not by that point not by that point yeah. so how did you come to a university education so um i had to uh, when i decided i want to kind of uh, um have a secular education um and i want to live a more secular life um i i i spent a few years um, do it. So I, I had an educational mentor that a charity uh, helped me with. I had a lot of friends from the wider Jewish, uh, not friends, I had a lot of help from the wider Jewish community. So there's a charity called Mavar, mm-hmm. um, and they helped me with educational mentors. Um, and they were like, okay, so you want to get to university to study physics and philosophy. Here's what you got to do. Um, you got to have basic GCSEs. You don't have to have like all nine or 11, but you have to have like English, maths and science. Um, so I did that. And um, in one year, whilst I was... By that time, I'd already kind of been kicked out of the community, so I was—I had to support myself on my own. So I was—I was working. Um, um, actually, uh, at that time, I was working night shifts um, in Sainsbury's. I was working night shifts, and then and then in the evening, going to college to study my GCSEs. Then I did an access course um, in physics and maths instead of an A level, and then I then I went to university and. They were, I guess they were impressed with my, they, you know, they understood I was an adult student. I wrote them a nice personal statement explaining why I don't have the traditional qualifications. And I guess they were impressed. And which, which uni was it? Bristol. Bristol. Yeah. Um, I mean, you dropped in something which sounds very important, which is got mm. kicked out of your community. Yeah. How like, did that happen? Why, why did that happen? Yeah. Um, that was a very painful episode in my life. So, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a bit sensitive as well, because this is talking about people who are very dear to me, yeah. family and, and community. Um, but when I kind of came out as, at the time, came out as non-religious, um, it was made clear to me that I can't, like, stay in the community, that I can't. Um, so I, I found myself independent. I was I was kind of cut off. Um, did you know that that was a risk before you told your family? I did, but I hoped I can avoid it. I tried to avoid it. I tried to say, like, look, I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, this is not personal. I don't have anything against the community, against my family. This is just me going on my own way. Um but that was the reality. And, and it's it's such an insular community. And, and also the fact that I'm the oldest of 10, mm. there was a big fear that I'll be a bad influence on, on others. 
And so when you say that you had to support yourself, did that mean moving out? Did that yeah. mean I, I was I was homeless Hill? for a while and I had I had literally just the shirt on my back, uh, nothing, I had no money, no nothing. And um, uh, I was t- a kind family took me in for a bit until I could find a job, um, um, until I could find a place to, to was live. Was this so, a, a Jewish family, a non-Hasidic uh, family? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and, and when you were making the decision to tell people that you were non-religious, did you know of other people who'd gone down that path and also had to leave the community. So I knew of people who did it in in the states, and I contacted them. I didn't know anyone who did this in London. Yeah, but I so I I had contacts internationally who kind of helped me with advice and moral support. And what did you learn from them? They told me how. Firstly, the the whole idea that you can leave, you can choose your own path. You need a role model for that. Um, they were a big inspiration. Um, and they also told me things like, you know, it's very hard now, it's tough, but it's going to get better. Um, and how old were you? I was 20. I mean, yeah. still in the grand scheme of things, a baby. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. about what I would have been at 20 without Right. But it's even more than that because I was I never lived independently. Like a 20-year-old mm. in the community, but, but before marriage, you're considered a boy. Only after marriage, you become a man. I was living with my parents. I didn't own any money. I didn't have anything, right? I'd never even like left my community to go anywhere to, or I've never interacted with anyone outside the community other than the few cheeky bits, but I was never meant to. I never had friends outside the community. There was a lot to learn. So how did it feel? I mean, I'm obviously skipping over a, a, a quite a sizable period of time of your access course and working in Sainsbury's, but you go from being, you know, spending the first 20 years in a very, very insular community, very, very family focused. And then you're at Bristol where there's, Apple sours shots and there's parties and there's clubs and there's people and there's all this stuff going on. What was it like adjusting to this massive expansion of your social world? Yeah, I mean, I came to university not for the for the nightclubs and for the wild nights and That's the parties. That's what everyone says. That's fine. I, <laughs> no, I, I I love to sit in the library and study. Now, the parties did happen and they did come later. But, but that sounded like, like a very like Boris Johnson admission of like parties did happen. They were attended. Um, I had fun at university, for, of, for, um, of course. But I, m- the, the, the main thing that I loved so much was just being able to study and being at a world-class university, studying uh, things that I, I loved. I, like, as I've mentioned, like the way I was brought up, the relationship you have with knowledge is, you know, you mentioned dating, right? We're not mm-hmm. meant to have any uh, contact with girls and any kind of romance. We did have romance, though. Our romance was with the book. And, and the way we talk about learning is as a love. It's a deep love. And we celebrate that love. You know, when there's a new tourist scroll, um, everyone dances with it as if it's as if it's a wedding, right? Um, so we I was brought up to have a very deep spiritual connection with learning. And I transferred that to the study of physics and philosophy. For me, I really love that because you know, as you can imagine, you come out from a very intense religious worldview, you suddenly find yourself, okay, so what is real? Right? Mm. What is true? What's morality? Where does that come from? So I had to build it up from the ground up. Um, so I love that. Now, of course, you know, there was the social element and uh, there, there, was, there was some difficulties acclimatizing. Um, it, it was difficult and, you know, I was never, was always a bit socially awkward. And, and that, that was quite challenging, actually, um, acclimatizing into a, a group. Eventually, I kind of... What, what were the things that you found challenging? What kind of So one of the things, for example, these were cultural things. So I, the way I was brought up, you always 
argue about something. <laughs> okay. You always argue about some learning. And it's not personal. It's just because you're trying to get to the truth. So you're arguing. And I would just meet people and immediately like dive into a deep argument and people would be offended. Like, oh, why are you shouting at me? And yeah, you know, yeah. so these kinds of things. Um, eventually I ended up kind of founding my own social circle of kind of fellow travelers and like weirdos and nerds. Um, <laughs> and this is where the Bristol Free Speech Society uh, got founded, where I founded the Bristol Free Speech Society, which was first and foremost, just a group of like people, independent thinkers of all kinds of stripes to like meet and like talk about anything and everything and have a good time. Um, I mean, I know exactly what you mean by uh, thinking that arguing is a love language. I'm like, we don't have an inside voice in my family. This is just the volume at which we talk. Um, That's very cultural, right? Oh, yeah. And they're talking with the hands as well. Like there's a lot of this. And it comes across as very aggressive to people who are, you know, white English very often. Yes. They don't do all of this. They don't do that. They don't shout. They don't raise their voice. It's a very, and it's not, it's not even a white versus non-white. Like if you go to Spain... Mm. Everyone speaks with their hands and shouts. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's a cultural thing, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a Protestant thing. Is what I should really be Protestant, saying. that's yeah, the word. That Protestant, is what it is. Germanic. Oh, my God. I, I find it, my, my, my partner is, um, his, his, he's white and British, and the difference in volume from his family and my family, and I only realized it when I met his, his parents for the first time and I was in their home, and I was like, I am the loudest person who's ever been in yeah. here. I have to yeah. modulate my voice yes. because... I think they think that I'm screaming at them. Yeah, yeah. People misinterpret you. People misinterpret and you have to learn it over time. Because people really think you're being aggressive, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's you're like, no, no, no. Yeah, just, I'm just, just passionate. Yeah, you know? th- this is enthusiasm. Yeah, like this yeah. is how we communicate yeah, yeah. and signal enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, have you found as we're talking, there are so many things that you say and I go, I see the similarity with my own cultural background. Yeah. Um, did you find that? Is that, you know, leaving the community, you're engaging with people from different cultural backgrounds. You're like, hang on a second. The Bengalis are the Hasidim of Asia. This is, you know, this is making sense here. Well, my partner's French and she always moans about how the English are, you know, are so dry and, and quiet <laughs> and she's passionate and we, we we often connect over those cultural similarities and she loves it when I talk with my hands and when I shout and all these kinds of things yeah I mean do you think your background has given you a kind of outsider's view of English culture that you can see things in English culture oh, that your Englishmen can't see definitely and I and I'd imagine that you feel very much the same in some to some yeah, extent yeah, yeah. you have a kind of outline uh, out, out, outsider's view I also think you know when you've grown up all your life in one culture, you only have one culture to compare it with. You don't have a frame of reference outside mm. of your own culture. You're like a fish in water, never been outside of water. Um, whereas people who have kind of, have either kind of a multicultural background or have moved, have been between cultures, I think we can see things that others don't. I mean, are there yeah. habits that you've retained? I mean, you've, you, you've talked about the intellectual method and that sense of argumentation, disputation and rigor, but things like cutting your nails in a certain way, do you find yourself intuitively doing that? Like muscle memory. No, I, I I put in a lot of effort to to undo it deliberately because I didn't want to be stuck with those habits all my life. Um, yeah. How how does but, that feel? I guess the undoing. Did it feel joyful or liberating. a sense of loss? Yeah, liberating. Yeah. Also, I went through a period of being kind of a new atheist um, rationalist, where everything I'm going to do is going to be hundred percent rational and. So I had to kind of undo all these things. I've late, you know, later, I mean, this has been a journey and I'm still young, still on a journey, but later I've kind of learned to connect a bit more with 
with a well, I don't know what's called with the spiritual side of things. And I, I now I actually love um, I'm not religious, but I, I love uh, ritual and. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about how physics interacts with belief and non-belief in God, because right. this is a very reductive way of putting it. But yeah. you meet biologists and they tend to be very hardcore new atheists. And then you start meeting physicists and you go, oh, OK, well, you'd have no room for God. And in my experience, they've often yeah. been believers in God, if not, you know, wholly fundamentalist followers of a particular scripture. Yeah, I, I think science is meant to be an empirical enterprise where you subject things to tests in the lab and based on that you make your decisions and god by definition is not something you can test in the lab i think any scientist who claims that they've scientifically disproved god is talking rubbish and being arrogant um i think you know science is i'd argue can be neutral with respect to the question of god and i think there's room for actually looking at science and say there must have been a creator. This is so beautiful. Somebody mm. must have created it. And there's a room for saying, well, actually, we can explain so much. We don't need a God. Okay. But I think there's room for both. And actually, as a science educator, I, I am, I'm creating um, scientific resources in Yiddish. Okay. Which, um, so I have to be very careful with these things because mm. I don't want to put anyone off from science saying, oh, learn science, become an atheist. Mm. I don't think that's the case. And you, you talked about having a bit of a new atheist phase yeah. i mean did you feel like you could disprove god at one point i never felt i could disprove god i felt i could make very strong arguments for why believing that there is a god is irrational um <laughs> i think we've all had that, that phase i've also had, all that had phase. look i still don't believe in god i'm still an atheist i'm just not a new atheist i, mm. I now believe i think you can be very rational and believe in god i i don't think there is hard evidence for god and i don't find philosophically I don't find philosophically that God explains much, but there's room for disagreement. That's for lot. You know, philosophy isn't a hard science. There's room for different. Have you ever views. have you ever had this conversation with your parents? Because I remember being like seventeen, eighteen, and talking about my newly discovered atheism with my mother, and she was like, "Well, look, I can't make a case for God. I can't do that." But there's something very emotional in me which needs yeah. this belief and is sustained by this belief. And at the time, I was like, "What a shit argument!" And then. I, you know, lived a bit, had some losses as well. And I was like, I really understand this feeling that she was talking yeah. about. No, exactly. Exactly. I think that there is a certain way of looking at the world that comes with age. I mean, not that either of us are very old, but I think we've lived a bit. When you're, in a, when you're a teenager, you want to, you know, want everything proven to you or presented to you in digestible, rational ways. And I think when you're older, you discover, for example, what I discovered is, okay, the Bible might not be literally written by God. But whoever wrote it, there's a lot of human wisdom in it. There's a lot of life experience. And yeah, whoever wrote it's got bars. What's that word? Oh, <laughs> got bars. Got bars. Um, got lines. Saying saying good things. Saying good things. Right, right. Bars from things. like yes, yeah, stanzas. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> still learning some slang. You see, still integrating. Um, no, but it's not the kind of thing I'd I'd, I'd um, argue with my parents. It's no, with my parents. It's more about how are you? How's mm -hmm. the weather? How's everyone? Tell me about the family. Simchas, celebrations. Mm. Have you have um, you found some common ground with them in your years since leaving the community? It's been an ongoing project mm. involving lots of love, lots of patience. Um, I love them very much. They love me very much. It's been very difficult for them. It's been very difficult for me. Uh, neither of us ever wanted to hurt each other, mm. but we did. Um, and over the years, we've been able to, and, and it's ongoing, I should say, 
to kind of acknowledge that and try and move past that and find the common points. Look, I'm I'm their I'm their son, and they mm. you know mom, every time I speak with my mother, all she wants to know is like. You know, do you have a nice shirt to wear? Do you have good food to eat? That's <laughs> all she. Are you eating exactly? So you know that, that I think that's God, not God, religion, not religion. I think everyone can be on the same page with that. I mean, I was chatting about this with my mum yesterday because I told her I was doing this interview, and I was asking her, you know, to what degree should communities be really autonomous and culturally distinctive and maybe even isolationist? Because this is something where philosophically, politically, I go back and forth because on the one hand, I think social mixing, diversity, different kinds of people meeting, sharing their lives is great. And I want it to happen as much as possible. And on the other, I think you have a right to live your life as you choose. And those are not wholly compatible ideas. And one of the things she said, which was, I thought, quite on the ball was like, well, look, there are lots of practices which you look at and are horrified by. So one might be denying secular education to children. Another one might be something like FGM. And she was like, the uncomfortable truth is people do these things, they think it's what's best for their kids. And if you want things to change, you can't just come down with, you know, the sword of Damocles and raining fire and brimstone and judgment and muscular liberalism. Your your mother's a wise woman. She, I mean, Uh, she's a wise woman. Yeah, Yeah, she is. Um, You have to build trust with communities and, and, change things like yeah. that and I mean you've said that things have been changing within yeah. the community do you think that's come from mutual trust or, or something else so I think as a country okay if I was the government or thinking politically on a country level um I would be worried about communities forming almost states within states like I think there does need to be a baseline of law uh, there does need to be a baseline a minimal baseline of values like it doesn't, you know, we don't all have to agree on everything, but there needs to be a minimal baseline of respect for law and order, tolerance for people who are different. Um, um, beyond that, I think we can quibble about philosophically, should everyone be, you know, a new atheist, secular person? Mm. Or I think the reality is, is there are different communities. Okay, that's a reality. Um, and the question is how to deal with that, right? Um, and that's where I very much agree with your mother. You need trust. Um, you need dialogue. You also sometimes need to come down hard mm-hmm. with the law. Sometimes if, I don't know, we, you know, if there's a terrorist threat or there's a real abuse of, of children going on, right? Sometimes, not to talk about the Hasidic community, but mm. sometimes cults will abuse mm. children. The law does have to come down hard. Where exactly is the line between dialogue, communication and coming down hard with the law? That's an open question. Um, and I'd argue it's a pragmatic question, not one you can you can solve in theory. Is there a distinction for you between a very, very strict religious upbringing and a cult? Because these are words which sometimes get used interchangeably and they're very emotive words. But yeah. is there a difference for you there? I think there are similarities in the differences. So um, if you look at definitions of cults, there's kind of cri- several criteria. High control, uh, discouraging talk with outsiders, shunning those who leave. Um, often there'll be financial control. Um, often there'll be abuse of power by one person. If you look at those criteria, high control religions often fulfill many of these criteria, but not all of them. Um, The Hasidic community, I would argue, is not a cult, but shares some characteristics with cults. Why is it not a cult? Because there isn't one man at the top who controls everything. Okay, as I said, it's different dynasties, different leaders, and there's lots of uh, wriggle room within. Uh, No one has financial financial control on people, on families and households. Um, So I'd argue it's not a cult, but clearly 
there is an element of shunning those who leave. There's an element of discouraging uh, talking with outsiders. There's an element of brainwashing. The faith is like really pushed on you. It's not like, oh, make up your own mind. Mm. Um, yeah. And I mean, so again, I, I would say brainwashing is another one of those really emotive words, right? Yeah. So how do you draw, how do states draw a distinction between what is a level of cultural transmission, which is acceptable and good and fine, and something like brainwashing, where I'd go, I don't think there is a right to brainwash your children. I don't, as far as I'm aware, I may be wrong, as far as I'm aware, I don't know if there is a legal category mm. of brainwashing and there a legal isn't. right not to be brainwashed. Um, I would argue that many ways in which parents bring up children are forms of brainwashing. And I mean, let's strip the emotive element of brainwashing. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it descriptively as implanting certain ideas in your child without giving them the opportunity to question it, right? Or to discuss it. I'd argue, and this is maybe a controversial point, I'd argue, which you love. Yeah, I, I, love, yeah, it. I love So it. you saw my eyes uh, just yeah, pop yeah, up yeah. like... I'd argue that every society brainwashes its members into its most fundamental values, okay? When, if you were a kid growing up and you said, you know, maybe it is okay to murder and rape people, no one would be like, hmm, you know what, go out and explore, ask the questions. People would say, no, it's wrong, right? I don't think that's wholly true because there's a different way of doing it, right? right. There's a different way of doing it, which is, and, and kids learn this from very early, right? So say you've got a toddler and toddler's throwing a tantrum and toddler smacks mum or smacks a sibling, right. a normal level of child violence. There's one way where you go, no, 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 and that's it. And there's another where you go, no, 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 and here's why. And you cultivate a sense of the other. And you can do some like, you know, I mean, again, because my mother was a, a social worker, she never she never beat us. Sometimes the lectures were so long, we'd beg her just to hit us and get it over with, but she never did it. Um, it would be a lot of going, and wouldn't you like to be treated this way? And how right. would it be if everyone behaved like this? And so on but, and so on and so forth. Persuasion. Right. But persu it's not persuasion in a sense that there's genuinely two legitimate outcomes. Like if after the persuasion, you're like, mom, I listened to everything you've said. I still think it's okay to murder, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be, you know what? agree to disagree, right? So there's an element of, well, I'll take my time to explain it to you, but at the end of the day, this is what you have to believe. There's no two options about it. Um, I, so anyway, it's a, I, I think- I guess I think there's a difference between socialization and brainwashing. Right. In that case, we were, well, in that case, we were very strongly socialized mm. to, uh, to believe in the religion. Um, questioning wasn't an option that, you know, this is true and that's it, full stop. Um, if you think otherwise, that's stupid and evil and everything. Um, the way it phenomenologically felt to me was it felt like brainwashing, um, but it's not the kind of brainwashing where I would like to see outlawed. I don't think you can outlaw that kind of transmission parent to child. Do I criticize it? Hell yeah. I think I. that's not how I would bring up my children. Um, but is it the government's role to regulate that? No, I don't think. I actually think... And I think you'll have some sympathy here. Um, I think, you know, the government has its legitimate domain of roles. I think family life, except in extreme circumstances when the state needs to interfere, when there's clear abuse or marital rape or something like that, I think in general, I'd say family life is maybe a domain where it's not really for the state, except I, in exceptions. I think it's complicated. I mean, sure, I think that you've got a very punitive arm of social services, right? Which is about saying we will 
seek a court order to remove your child. And I don't think that is something which should be done lightly or willy-nilly. And I think that there should be a very high threshold that's met. But something like anti-smacking laws, I'm totally comfortable with that. Really? Totally comfortable with anti-smacking laws. Are you not? In Scotland, they brought that in, isn't it? It's illegal to... I think... um, I think in schools, that's one thing. Schools is the public domain. Government controls schooling. I think at home, I wouldn't... I wouldn't... I just want to be on record. I would not hit my kids, Mm -hmm. okay? I think if somebody does want to hit their kids, we're not talking about beating brown and blue, mm-hmm. black and blue. We're talking about, you know, smacking on the on the wrist or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the role of the state to 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 interfere. You can make arguments, you can make in, in civic society you can argue that that's bad, but I don't think the state should should illegalize it. Because it's a very slippery slope. I don't want the state to come in and tell to tell me what I can tell my tell my children what I can do at my home. My home is my sacred place. See, I I mean one, I'm filled with guilt whenever I have to make a big scary noise to get the cat off the counter. So I I, I wouldn't be you know, kicking my kids anyway. But the law in England is that you can't leave a mark and that's right. the, the threshold of right. intervention. But that is itself, I think, a really subjective measure. So right. different children bruise in yeah. different ways. It takes different levels of force. You've got forms of, you know, physical chastisement, which can be very, very painful and don't leave marks. And of course, if there was evidence of a sustained campaign of, you know, physical abuse which doesn't leave a mark the state would intervene but i think as a kind of blanket rule of like don't do that i think well, is 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 reasonable rational and enforceable look i i think that uh, psychological abuse is much more harmful than a little smack mm-hmm. okay if a if a parent bullies their child uh, that's more harmful and and uh, yeah and I, I wouldn't i think it's very difficult when the state interferes also when the state interferes with families it's and, and I see this because I'm an interpreter in court, a Yiddish mm-hmm. interpreter. So I see these kinds of interactions. Almost always, the children get more scarred mm. out of it. And you mentioned it that the, the kind of taking away children should be should be a very high bar for it, right? Because children get scarred. The, the children, even children who get hit by their parents. So even when there's legitimate abuse, a child still looks up at their parent as their protector. And when this state comes in, this random person who they don't know who it is is going to snatch them away. That's very traumatic for a child. So would I? Look, you can make arguments for why hitting is bad. Would I want the state to come in and start punishing parents who hit? I don't know. Look, I, I think the experiment is happening in Scotland, right? Mm. So we can see. I guess we can wait and see. Yeah, we'll see. Like, do the Scots emerge more emotionally healthier than the rest <laughs> of us? Well, okay, clearly something's I working. I feel like there's lots of other confounding variables there. I mean, I, I mean, you, you mentioned the term psychological abuse, and I, I, I really don't want to put words in your mouth at all. But I guess I would characterize children being made to feel that if they you know, don't follow the line and if they don't believe something utterly and if they don't lead a very highly controlled existence where, you know, you're praying for many hours a day and you're not speaking to outside, that you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose the love of your family. You're going to lose the regard of your community. You're going to lose your place in the world. I would regard that as psychologically abusive. It's extremely coercive. It is very, it is, it is extreme. Um, on the other, just to make devil's advocate, uh, to make, um, to be devil's advocate, if you genuinely believe in that, you know, a, a religious Jew or Muslim would make the argument, I am telling the child he'll go to hell if he sins, but that's true. Mm. And if I don't tell it to him, I'm abusing them because they'll sin and go to hell. If I tell it to them, at least they cannot sin, right? So I think this is a case of a profound clash of worldviews, where obviously from a secular perspective, that is abusive, and it is. 
But from a religious perspective, it's just telling them the harsh truth. So then, so then if you go, okay, well, we recognize that that's abusive. Well, what do you do about it? For me, it's not the going to help it, which I'm like, I think it's perfectly fine to raise your child in that way if you want. It's the total loss of community element where I go, that's I abuse. should say, I should say that's also changing. Mm. Um, there's a big, big push within the community to not kick out your children who, who, are, who become secular, who become not religious. And it's changing very rapidly. I think Stamford Hill in London is behind the curve. It's a more kind of provincial, smaller community. If you go to um, New York, where there's, the community there is like 20 times bigger than Stanford Hill. This, these shifts have been happening over the last two decades. Um, it is changing. I think it's less common now to just kick out children. Um, and even in my case, you can see my parents are making a real effort to kind of bring me back and, and, and to keep in touch with me. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's happening less. I mean, you, you mentioned New York and before we started filming, we were talking about all of the Yiddish words that I know simply from watching American sitcoms. So schmuck, schlep, schmaltz. What was the other one that you mentioned? Spiel. Spiel. You mentioned that. Ah, yeah, Spiel. Um, and I was going to say Kasper Schmeichel, but that's all... actually a Danish goalkeeper. Someone entirely different. Why do they all start with sh? I think it's because they're fun to say. And I think it's because schm isn't a sound that you find in English English that often. And it's just kind of fun. Do you know the construction? Um, so whenever you want to make fun or you want to dismiss a term, mm -hmm. you can just repeat that term and then add schmer in front. So for oh, example, yeah. let's say somebody says, oh, the children. You can say children schmildren. Yeah. Right? Have you heard that construction? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, You know that, yeah. Is that Yiddish? Of course. What? That comes from Yiddish. Um, and so, I mean, I'm getting that kind of, in this like long roundabout route. I'm getting that, you know, not from... A European context. I'm getting it from American pop culture. Um, what was it like for you interacting with the secular jury? I mean, because for me, I'm like, that's got such a massive pop cultural imprint and I've experienced it in all these ways without ever really knowing it. What was it like for you to encounter uh, secular Jews after leaving an ultra-Orthodox community? Yeah, the, the, the white Jewish community has really embraced me, especially in the early years when I was really struggling and cut off from my community. They really were there for me, uh, helped me, took me in, embraced me. And I think they also feel that people in my position can enrich their culture because they are maybe two, three generations down the line. They're quite assimilated. You know, they're losing the, you know, most of them can't speak Yiddish. They'll know the word or two, but they, they can't. And I think someone like me comes with all the knowledge, with all the cultural background, and I feel... For many, it's it's kind of a connection to their own cultural past, and I'm I'm embraced. I'm you know I I come to Jewish conferences and people want me to give talks and to talk to children and and um, yeah I give lots of lectures and I write. I mean, so in terms of the status of Yiddish as a language, like is there? Am I being completely wrong? Like, is there an element of it being in competition with Hebrew as being a first language or a home language for Jewish kids? Or it like, was historically. It was historically. So in the late 19th century, um, I don't know how much you know about Zionism, also a controversial topic. Well, uh, we're, we're going to get to Herzl in a minute. but um... We'll get to Herzl. By the way, we'll get to Herzl. Um, yeah, let's go, let's go there. Um, <laughs> so end of 19th century, big Zionist movement. Jews are kind of reinventing themselves as a nation with a land, kind of a nationalistic movement, mm -hmm. which, by the way, was mostly secular driven. So mm -hmm. in a moment, I'll talk about my community's attitude towards Zionism and Israel. Um, there was a big war about what the official language of the new state of Israel is going to be, whether it's going to be Yiddish or Hebrew, and Hebrew won. And there were language wars where they basically banned people from like, the, you know, they'd go around in squads and like 
telling people don't speak Yiddish, speak Hebrew. But that's that's in the past. And nowadays, there's actually a big kind of uh, almost an awakening. Secular Jews growing up and want to have part of that of that culture. And also, I should say, in the West as a whole, there's a big reconnecting with kind of na- nativity and mm. indigenous uh, people. Lots of people, you know, are saying, "Well, I grew up, I'm this indigenous and that native." Um, and connecting with the with the old heritage, there's almost like a revival of things that are like not the main, not the standardized Queen's English. So a lot of secular Jews are, are learning Yiddish, um, reconnecting. There's films being made in Yiddish. I'm, I'm working on a film now. I'm not directing the film, but I'm working on the Yiddish elements of a film now, shot in Yiddish. So there's lots of exciting things happening. How difficult is it to learn Yiddish as a language for a native English speaker? Because there are some languages which are easier and some languages which are more difficult. So Spanish, fairly straightforward for a native English speaker. Portuguese, much more difficult. And they're next door to each other. So Yiddish versus Hebrew and ease of learning. Uh, Yiddish, much easier. Yiddish is a Germanic language. So it's going to have a very similar uh, grammar structure to English. Um uh, Hebrew is a Semitic language with a much more complex grammar, like 10 times more complex. So definitely learn Yiddish if you want to learn one And of the so two. Yiddish, does that use the the Latin alphabet? No, it's Semitic alphabet. alphabet. So all you have to do, you have to learn the Hebrew alphabet. You have to learn a lot of Hebrew vocab that are loan words into Yiddish, but the grammar structure is Germanic. Well, I mean, we, we, we mentioned Zionism and the sect that you grew up, the dynasty you grew up with has what many people consider a very unusual relationship to Zionism. Could you explain what yeah, it is? Yeah, it's not that unusual. So religious Jews always had a uh, very complex relationship with Zionism. Zionism is, in theory, kind of a secular nationalistic movement of the 19th century. I mean, so, okay. So Jewish tradition, going back since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, so just because some people have conspiracies about it, just to put it on the record, Jews did used to live in that land. They did have two temples there in that land. That's we're indigenous of that area. Um, there were two temples there. They were destroyed. Jews were exiled. Um, since then, Jews have retained a connection with the land, religious Jews. And this is everywhere in the religious liturgy. So three times a day in your prayers, you mention Jerusalem, you pray God uh, to return you to Jerusalem. Whenever you eat, you make a blessing after the after eating, you mention Jerusalem. Under the chuppah, on your marriage day, before uh, just before you are marrying your wife, you break a glass and and that's to remind you that the celebration isn't complete because Jerusalem was still not in Jerusalem. Is that what it symbolizes? Yes. Because I, I was at my friend's wedding uh, in the summer and there was the broken glass element, which had to be done very carefully because she was wearing open-toed sandals. <laughs> very, <laughs> very carefully. Do- and I was asking, what does this symbolize? And yeah. no one could tell me. That's a shame, but that's what it is. So... No one should tell you Jews don't have a connection with Israel. However, when we're talking about modern Zionism, so that's a political movement. Traditionally, Jews said, one day the Messiah is going to come, God is going to take us back. And in fact, traditionally, the view is that we are not allowed to do anything about it. It's not a political thing. We're not allowed to take up arms and take it back. We have to wait for the Messiah to come, which is going to be a supernatural event. Modern Zionism said, actually, we're going to take up arms. We're going to go back to that, to our indigenous place. Um, Many Hasidic Jews... Most Hasidic Jews, I'd argue, are, if not downright anti-Zionist, are at least non-Zionist. Uh, Satma, the, the dynasty I come from, is explicitly anti-Zionist, so much so that it's the defining facet of its ideology. So if you ask a Satma Jew what defines Satma, they'll say anti-Zionism. Okay, it's defining, I grew up, before I even knew what Israel was, before I knew every, anything, I knew that Zionism was bad. And it's because it's preempting the will of God. It's preempting the will of God. It's doing it in our own way, not waiting for the Messiah. And also Israel is a secular state. It's not a religious state. So 
you know, how does that help us? And so how's your relationship with Israel then changed since leaving the community? Has it changed? It has changed. And, you know, for your listeners, this might be the most controversial thing I'm going to say, because I know you have a, kind of a, a, a left-leaning uh, audience. I am a Zionist today. Mm-hmm. And what does that um, mean to I'll, you? Oh, good. I'll qualify it. Firstly, I think what's happening to the Palestinians in Israel is an atrocity. I'm just going to say that right out. It's completely unacceptable that Israel is breaking international law um, and occupying Palestine. Okay, I'll just put that right mm-hmm. out. However, when I say I'm a Zionist, what, what I mean is I do believe Jews are indigenous to that region, as well as the Palestinians. There can be multiple groups indigenous to a region. And I think that it is right there should be a Jewish state in the world. All nations have a state. Jews didn't have a state. We suffered persecutions and holocausts for it for a thousand years. It's right that we should also have a state under Jewish sovereignty. Now, that state should be uh, welcoming to all citizens, Jews and non-Jews alike. alike. They should all have equal rights. Um, um, But I I do think there should be a Jewish state. Would there be a right of return for Palestinian refugees? (sighs) That's a really, really difficult question because... In a sense of natural justice, there should be if if there's a. Um, but in terms of logistics, the political logistics, how is that going to work? Look, I think until we don't have a two state solution, and I do believe in a two state solution, I think it's the only solution. Um, I think I think it's a mess. I do think it's a mess. everything that's happening in Israel, even within the Israeli society, the the reform law um, and the protest, everything is because Israel is ultimately occupying a land that doesn't belong to it. So it's going to have it's going to have to introduce almost apartheid-like laws because the Palestinians don't have uh, voting rights because Israel says, well, they're not citizens, they're just in their territory, but Israel is occupying it. I think the first thing, there needs to be a two-state solution. And then I'd love to see Palestinians being able to return to their country. But now as it stands, Palestinians lay claim to the whole area. Israel lays claim to the whole area. And and I do believe in a Jewish state. I believe in a Palestinian state as well. Okay, But I do believe in a Jewish state. And a Jewish state kind of needs to have a Jewish majority. Um See, I think this is this is the bit where I disagree is that one, fundamentally, I believe in the right of self-determination for people rather than states. And I think that there's an important distinction there. I think that people have right to self-determination to organize themselves. This idea of states having the rights of peoples, I'm very, very uncomfortable with. And then the second thing is that I think this is obviously a very cosmopolitan view and it reflects being born and raised in this country. I don't believe in the right to establish an ethnic majority in a particular territory. I, 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 I just I think don't. You made a good qualifier there, but I think it's very easy to say that um, when growing up in a country like Britain. Um, think of an indigenous country in Africa, okay, um, where maybe they'll say, you know what, we want to be an African majority country. We don't want the whites to be a majority here, right? Think more about on those lines. So I completely hear what you're saying. And this goes back to something which I find very interesting, which is the differences between race and ethnicity. So when you talk about African countries, there have been huge amounts of bloodshed and warfare over the idea of keeping an ethnic, an ethno-linguistic or a religious majority. Now, looking from the vantage point of the West, you'd go, well, you're all African. What's the beef here? But there's actually very extreme levels of violence. And that's one of the reasons why I'd go, hang on, this idea of a particular ethnicity, religious group, or ethnic group having a majority which they can enforce in some way, politically, demographically, or by by the use of violence, I go, I think that's been very bad. So I think that there are examples of that. And when you look at um, 
when you look at the uh, the white minority states of apartheid South Africa, formerly Rhodesia as well, I'd go, well, the problem there is a political and an economic settlement right. where okay. black people are prohibited from doing certain things and, and they face violence if, if they do. It's not a problem of there of are white people here. I understand. But even, even a country like Britain, right? We are, in our national anthem, we say "God save the Queen, uh, the King." We actually say, "If you're talking the hardest, gigs better pop up in your thoughts as an artist." But that's fine. <laughs> right, I'm not aware of, of that version. But "God save the King" that's that's a Christian God, yeah. Um, in our national uh, rituals, when we crown the King, that's a very Christian uh, celebration. You know, probably you're for abolishing that as well. Possibly. Not Christianity, but, just the monarchy, by the, the way. The monarchy. But Christian, you know, our, our monarch, who is the head of state, is also the head of church, mm-hmm. right? I don't have a problem with that as a Jew living in this country. I think it's fine for countries to have traditions and to have a certain uh, um, way of doing things as long as they're welcoming of others. And just going back to Israel, I would make the case Jews deserve... There's so many Muslim countries in the world. There's so many Christian countries in the world. Jews deserve to have one country um, where... They can, on a state level, have the national holidays be recognized. They can have a national anthem that talks about Jewish aspirations. But it has to be together, firstly, with rights for Palestinians. So a Palestinian state, Palestinians deserve that as well. Secondly, equal legal rights for all citizens, Jews or non-Jews within Israel. So I think for me, one is that I'm a secularist at the level of states. I don't think that we should have a head of state also be the head of the Church of England. I think that makes me a bit uncomfortable. Um, I've got no problem with the idea of states and national holidays reflecting the composition of its communities, whether that's something like a St. George's Day or whether that's Jewish religious holidays being a national holiday in whatever utopian state we're imagining between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan. I've got no problem with those things. It's the idea that you can enforce cultural hegemony of any kind at the expense of other human beings who live there. And that is something which is happening in Israel. It's not something which is happening in the same way here, though, of course, if it did, I'd also be very uncomfortable with that. And I want to see it move in a more secular direction. I mean, maybe turning this into a bit of a question, um, how has the idea of rights for Palestinians the idea of a right of return, what kind of state, whether it's a binational one state, a simple one state, two state solution, how has that factored into the evolution of your Jewish identity since leaving the community? Like this idea of, you know, these other people here who are predominantly Muslim and Christian and have lived on the land for, you know, the same amount of time. Well, to be honest, I'm a British Jew. I don't mm. think about those issues a whole lot. I'm not an Israeli, I don't have Israeli citizenship. My primary loyalties are to Britain. I'm a very proud British Jew. And I intend to stay here. Um, and I'd urge, Have you ever visited? I have visited, yeah. What was it like? It was... I really liked it. It was very moving for me. Um, because, as I said, I, I you know, it, it going... You know, for me, being in a state where, you know, being in Britain, but all the rituals of the state are Christian, I'm fine with that. But for once, I saw my culture reflected on a state level. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling of pride. It's a feeling of we have sovereignty, we have power. I fully accept, you know, I've said that the Palestinian issue is is a very important issue, very tragic issue, and and um, and by the way, I should I should clarify, most British Jews and most diaspora Jews, most American Jews are very critical of Israel for the way it handles the Palestinian issues. Most support Israel, 
but most are very critical, as in support Israel as a Jewish state, but are very critical of how Palestinians are, are treated. And we're not going to have peace until the Palestinians have a, some some form of state, whichever form of solution it's going to be, because it's not right. You, you can't you can't just keep a nation occupied for decades and decades and decades. So I do think there'll be a solution. Um, but in the, that you know may seem contradictory, but that doesn't impact on my ability to feel proud that we have a Jewish state and to feel that even as a British Jew, um, there's still a state for Jews that can go visit and, it's, and it could be like a second home. I mean, I, I really acknowledge that there are some significant differences in our experiences of racism. So I do not have in my family's story an experience of near extermination, which is still in living memory. And that makes a massive difference in terms of how I conceive of my place here and my relationship to Bengal, both sides of the border. Um, and, and I suppose maybe one of the things that I'm I'm hinting at here is that it's it sometimes seems to me that the uniqueness of the Holocaust as a genocidal project, and I think that you know it's not unique in being a genocide; it's unique in the mechanization, the and industrialization, the of, industrialization it. It's, it's the of it. Like I think I think that is absolutely unique. Is that it? Then almost goes okay, but then there are different rules for how this state is going to function, and the normal rules of democracy of rights, what we think of as, you know, not super duper left-wing values, but liberal values get suspended in this case. Look, firstly, I do think Israel should be held to the standard that any Western nation is held to. It should be held and it should be criticized. I uh, People who shout anti-Semitism when somebody criticizes Israel, they really get on my nerves. Um, secondly, you know, you talk about liberal values and rule of law. Those are very important. I believe in them. The majority of the world's countries are not liberal democracies. Okay, Israel is not the only country in the world that is not the perfect liberal democracy. Very true. Um, and it does need to be contextualized. I, 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 as I said, criticizing Israel is important, but people who are obsessive and the only... I, I'm a big Pink Floyd fan, okay? Very big Pink Floyd fan. Um, um, Roger Waters did a concert here a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. I went, I took my brother, it was his first concert ever. Um, I'm a big fan of Roger Waters' music. Um, politically, he said a lot of things that make me very uncomfortable. Um, and it's not just the fact that he criticizes Israel. It's two things. Firstly, the obsession. Whilst at the same time, he'll defend, he'll deny that China is, is doing bad stuff to the Uyghurs. He'll say Putin, Ukraine, two sides, right? Um, but then Israel is like the pariah of the world. Secondly... He also doesn't get his facts right, um, and and he makes it a bit more... You can use language against Israel, which tie into age-old tropes of anti-Semitism. If you see British politics as being having strings pulled by this Israeli lobby, that's, that's when it gets to anti-Semitic levels. So by all means, let's criticize Israel. Uh, by all means, let's point out Israel's shortcomings. Um, but let's use... Let's contextualize it. It's not the biggest atrocity in the whole world. It's you know, it's bad. Um, and it definitely doesn't, it's not a world leading event. It, British politics, American politics isn't having pull, strings pulled by Israel. No, I would say actually it's probably the other way around. If you want to think about American geopolitical power and how it's related to the state of Israel. Right. I, do, I, don't, right. I don't believe that right. Israel is, is the sort of, you know, shadow, shadow puppeteer. I actually kind of think it's America. Um, 
I mean, but, it's not shadows with America. America is the kind of leading power on these things. I mean, but when it comes to this idea of obsession, the comparison in my mind that emerges is with apartheid South Africa. So during the anti-apartheid struggle, it was very often said, well, what about this country? What about this country? What about this country? And of course, you can say that until the cows come home. You can say that whenever you're looking at anything. If you want to talk about Myanmar, you could say, well, you know, what about what's going on in the Central African Republic? If you talk about that, it's like, well, what about what's going on in Eritrea? It's a never-ending cycle of what about this other thing? And I think that one of the things that happens with countries where we've got particularly close ties. We have particularly close ties to Israel in a way that we don't. Yeah, and we consider it part of the Western world. We consider it part of the Western world. If you want to talk about arms sales, if you want to talk about uh, diplomatic and political protection, all of these things are really important in a way that you can't compare it to other nations. And I think the the last thing I'd sort of add on my Roger Waters uh, rebuttal, and this isn't me speaking up for Roger Waters, I actually don't like prog rock. Okay, that, 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 that's, that's why probably I draw the most controversial thing we've said, we've, we've said all day. I can't not like Pink Floyd. Um, I actually want to go see his show in Mexico City. Um, the tour that you this saw. is not a drill. Uh, yeah, the, the I, controversial I saw, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, saw, yeah. I, uh, I got. Um, I loved the show. It was a great show, and I got lots of flack from my fellow Jews for going. People I, were very angry that I went. The, I mean, this is uh, never before heard on Navarra Media. It was the British ambassador to Mexico, uh, John Benjamin, who invited me to go, and. I was like, great, I'll I'll go something for free. And I got incredibly pissed. Um, But there aren't, when when you talk about, say, um, Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE, I'm sure it would be different if you were in Saudi Arabia. But if you talk about the treatment of Nepalese, Bangladeshi workers, talk about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, you don't have uh, Saudi Arabian community organizations who are denouncing you for doing it in this country. Every time I've spoken out about Saudi Arabia or UAE, it gets ignored, basically. No one gives a shit. They're like, let us say whatever. When you talk about Israel, there's a very different kind of climate of response. And I can see how that would keep you locked into that conversation rather than spreading your denunciation yeah. evenly. It's a shame. It's a shame. I, It is a shame. And as I said, like people who conflate anti- Zionism, anti-Israel with anti-Semitism really get on my nerves. And in my view, that exacerbates anti-Semitism because as you've said, now it's a personal fight, right? If every time I'm going to criticize Israel, you're going to shout at me anti-Semitism, well, maybe I am going to be anti-Semitic. Maybe I am going to start criticizing the Jews, right? So I don't have a solution to that. Um, I would say two things when criticizing Israel. Firstly, keep it about Israel. Don't involve international jury in this. Most Jews in the diaspora are very critical of Israel. They are. Um, Secondly, and this is a weaker point, but try avoiding making comparisons with the Holocaust. And this is not, this is just because this is such an emotive issue, the Holocaust, and it is so so singular an atrocity that when you're saying that Israel is now causing the same Holocaust that happened to them 70 years ago, they're now doing to the Palestinians, or Israel is behaving like the Nazis that killed them, that's very, very emotive, and you're already bringing down the conversation. So, and yeah. I'm in agreement about that being something which is bad taste. I think yeah. my only point of contention is going, I don't want to police the language Palestinians That's a good point use. as well. I th- that's a good point. If somebody feels oppression, you don't tell them how to shout about them, yeah, their oppression. I, I, I think I would, that's a good point. I would go, me as being neither Jewish nor Palestinian, it's yeah. not my place to draw right. that comparison. I'm not going to do it. I've got one last question before we sure. wrap up because I know I've kept you for longer. What is the one thing that you wish people knew about your community? I... Good question. I wish when people talked about my community, 
they don't talk about it in terms of oh you know only in terms of um, oh so oppressed no women's right no secular education it's an important part of the conversation but I wish people also look and marvel and like wow this is it's probably the most insular community in the UK I think I haven't heard of a of a of a more insular community it carries with it remnants of a pre-modern pre-industrial uh, way of life and and it has a very very beautiful family life very vibrant very connected and I and I and I wish just people look at it more holistically rather than just with a moral judgmental frame um, uh, glasses uh, look at it and and with wonder and interest and want to learn more about the community um, as you have done on this podcast well I love it when people praise me at the end of an interview. <laughs> um, Izzy Posen, thank you so much for joining us today thanks in for this me. sweat box of a room. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>